Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, in for Tanzina Vega. On Thursday afternoon, Representative Joyce Beatty, a Democratic member of Congress from Ohio and chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, was one of nine people arrested by Capitol Police. Representative Beatty was part of a small group publicly demonstrating in opposition to legislative efforts by Republicans in multiple states to restrict access to voting. And this is what Representative Joyce Beatty was doing moments before her arrest. Capitol Police issued a statement saying, quote, nine were arrested for demonstrating in a prohibited area on Capitol grounds. Now, this comes in the same week when Democrats from the state of Texas fled Austin to deny Texas Republicans the quorum necessary to pass a restrictive voting bill. Texas Governor Greg Abbott responded to the move by threatening to arrest the 50-plus elected officials upon their return to the state. As soon as they come back in the state of Texas, they will be arrested, they will be cabined inside the Texas Capitol until they get their job done. When voting rights demonstrators are arrested or threatened with arrest, it recalls a shameful period in American history when the power of the state was used not to protect and extend democracy, but to violently limit it. And when elected lawmakers are arrested or threatened with arrest for peacefully gathering to raise their voices and express the concerns of their constituents, it recalls authoritarian nations few would recognize as a democracy. And when all this happens while one political party refuses to investigate a violent recent insurrection that threatened to interrupt the peaceful transition of power, well, that suggests that the government of the people, by the people, and for the people may indeed be in danger of perishing from the earth. Joining me now is a man who knows a little about risking a risk to stand for equal rights, Representative James Clyburn. He's a Democrat representing South Carolina's 6th Congressional District and House Majority Whip. Welcome, Representative Clyburn. Thank you very much for having me. Can we start with your reactions to the arrest of Representative Beattie on Thursday? I am so proud of Joyce. I uh, was not uh, uh, forewarned that that was about to happen. Uh, I was a little bit surprised when I saw it, but I'm as proud of her as I can possibly be. Uh, She is demonstrating as leader uh, of the Congressional Black Caucus uh, how serious this issue is with us. Uh, And it's really, really serious. I'm having a hard time understanding uh, why people can't see uh, that uh, People like me uh, with uh, history uh, like I have here in the South, uh, we do not take voting lightly. There's been some tremendous sacrifices uh, for this. I was in uh, Dillon County this week. Uh, I was in Orangeburg County this week. These are places uh, that there is a history of denying the right to vote. Uh, last week I was in, uh, uh, Clarendon County where Brown v. Board of Education started. So people have to understand history is instructive and we will not run away from that history and we will not, uh, do violence to that history that we are going to remain true to the sacrifices made by so many of our parents and grandparents and we are not going to allow the vote to be taken away uh, with our participation. 
I'm when, a you talk, when you talk about that history, I have to say that for me, watching the Texas Democrats this week, using their relatively limited power as a minority party in a single state, but nonetheless, by fleeing Austin, they were able to really draw attention to these issues. It feels strategically smart and creative in ways that do, in fact, remind me of the civil rights movement. Have congressional Democrats who you helped to lead been similarly strategic and creative? I think so. Uh, and we are cooperating uh, and coalescing, I might add, uh, with those uh, legislators uh, from Texas. I cannot wait uh, to sit down with them uh, uh, next week, uh, as I did uh, the week before we uh, came home. If you remember, a small delegation of them came to Washington a couple of weeks ago, and I met with them at that time. Uh, Royce West, I know very, very well. Uh, and as well as many of the others. Uh, and we are standing in solidarity uh, with them on this issue. Now, there's been some public discussion about your position on voter ID laws. Would you like to take this moment to clarify that? Well, I don't know why people cannot understand uh, that when I have a position and you have a position and we sit down at the table together, uh, we try to find common ground. And I'm against the filibuster. I know the history of it. Strom Thurmond, representing South Carolina in the United States Senate, when he set the record uh, for the filibuster. Uh, and so he was setting that record, filibustering a civil rights bill. Uh, so I'm against the filibuster. But there are a lot of people in my caucus who are for the filibuster. So my whole thing is, is there common ground that can be reached? And I think it can. So we have already uh, accommodated uh, the budget uh, when it comes to the filibuster. We do not allow the full faith and credit of the United States uh, to be subjected uh, to a filibuster. That same principle should apply, in my opinion, to constitutional issues. So all I've said is, if you want to hold on to the filibuster, fine, though I'm against it. But if that's what you want, limit it to legislative issues. Do not allow it to constitutional issues like we don't allow it uh, on the budget. And that's a very uh, simple common ground, it seems to me. You aren't getting rid of the filibuster, but you aren't going to let it apply to constitutional issues such as voting like we don't for the budget. That's now all there, I'm proposing. Now, there's some reporting that suggests that President Biden has been unwilling to press for this filibuster carve-out that you support. When I think about the very real um, king-making moment that you had, um, and not only you, but South Carolina's Black voters in being decisive for President Biden in the 2020 um, primaries, does the president and his administration, do they owe it to both you and black Democratic voters in South Carolina and across the country to back this filibuster carve out strategy? Well, let me ask you, how many people believe that the Warnock and Ossoff would have gotten elected to the United States Senate from Georgia, the first Jewish guy and the first black guy electing Georgia, uh, I mean, uh, representing Georgia in the United States Senate? So this is a Senate issue. Irrespective of what uh, Joe Biden may feel about it, this is Schumer and the members of the Senate. 
Manchin would not be sitting in the majority today were it not for Warnock and Ossoff. And their state led on this. Georgia was the first to produce this kind of legislation. Texas and Florida followed them. So uh, people keep wanting to put this between uh, the White House. This rests in the Senate. And the president has said that. Whatever the Senate does with the filibuster, he is going to support. So this is a Senate issue, and it needs to be dealt with by the Senate. It seems to me that also a Senate issue and one way to tip Senate power durably in the direction of Democrats without any filibuster reform is to move towards statehood for Washington, D.C., and potentially also for U.S. Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico. Um, Are those statehood positions things that um, you personally support and that you're trying to move the Democrats towards? I personally support statehood in both instances, but I also know that that is not uh, necessarily the case with all uh, Puerto Ricans uh, in the United States uh, Congress. And so I stay out of that, but I do support statehood uh, for the District of Columbia. Always have. Uh, am on the bill this time, and I always have been on it. I want, to, I want to go back for a moment to um, voter ID laws. And again, there's been a little bit of public discussion that you may have shifted your position there. Can you clarify for us your position on voter ID laws? You know, I don't know why people keep misrepresenting that. I have never been against voter ID. Now, if you see a heading, as it was in a tweet, that had to do with a specific ID requirement, which said, as it did in Texas, it we will require a photo ID, and the photo ID on a hunting license is good, but a photo ID on a student activity card is no good. That's what I have spoken out against, and I wish people would just stop misrepresenting my position on that. I, I ID myself every time I go to vote, and I've been doing that since the age of 21 because 18-year-olds could not uh, vote when I was coming along. Every time I go to the polling place, I present my voter registration card for the uh, poll worker to compare it with her list. That's idea in myself. I've always done that. I've never been against that. So I am against you telling me a photo on a hunting license and I don't own a gun and do not hunt, but a photo uh, on a student activity card A college student is no good. That's what I have been against. I've spoken out against that. And I would ask anybody to take a look at the South Carolina law. When South Carolina required voter IDs, we sued them. And we won. Not because we got rid of ID, but we got concessions from them on making the ID fair and equitable. So let's stay in South Carolina for just a second. I'm your neighbor just to the north in North Carolina um, and have been a Nikki Haley watcher for a very long time. It seems pretty clear that your state's former governor, Nikki Haley, is likely to make a bid for the U.S. presidency. Do you have any thoughts about her likely candidacy? Well, Nikki Haley is a member of the Republican Party. She is a disciple uh, of Donald Trump. And I am not for anybody who supports an insurrectionist. 
Well, that's clear enough. Representative Clyburn, let's also stay in South Carolina for a bit to talk about the realities of the new Delta variant um, and unvaccinated um, people and these rising rates um, of COVID. Can you talk to us about the situation around COVID in your home state in South Carolina? This week and last week, I've held six town hall meetings talking about this. 99.5% of all the people who are contracting COVID-19 now have been unvaccinated. I'm doing everything I can to get the word out that people need to get vaccinated. People need to stop listening uh, to the Trumpers of the world who see a conspiracy in this. People need to stop this foolishness. People are dying and we better uh, get control of this virus or we will never return to any degree of normalcy. Representative James Clyburn, it is always such a pleasure to speak with you. Democrat representing South Carolina's 6th Congressional District and the House Majority Whip. Thank you for joining Thank the Takeaway. pandemic, I switched to online grocery shopping. But now that I'm vaccinated, I'm back to pushing my buggy down the aisles of my local store. Welcome to Supermarket Sniffing, squeezing, and eyeing my favorite produce again is a great feeling. But the bottom line at the cash register these days tends to drain my enthusiasm. And I don't even want to talk about what it cost my family to rent a minivan for our long drive to New Orleans for the 4th of July. The price prompted my husband to ask. Whoa, are we renting or buying this thing? So welcome to post-pandemic inflation. Here's Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen speaking on June 5th. We have in recent months seen some inflation and we at least on Um, a year-over-year basis will continue, I believe, through the rest of the year to see higher inflation rates. In June, the Consumer Price Index, the main tool for measuring inflation, came in at 5.4% over last year, the largest jump in 13 years. And the increase can mainly be attributed to products that were impacted by the pandemic, like used cars, washing machines, and airfares. But how long will this inflation last and who will it affect? Here to answer these questions and more is Trevon Logan, professor of economics at The Ohio State University. Trevon, welcome to The Takeaway. Welcome. Thank you. And also with us is Heather Long, economics correspondent for The Washington Post. Heather, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Trevon, can you take us back to Econ 101 a little bit and remind us how inflation is calculated? Yes. Uh, the most basic way of thinking about inflation calculation is to take a, a basket of goods, what you would purchase. So a simple example, say everyone purchases an apple and an orange. And if on Tuesday, apples and oranges are a dollar each and you spend and you purchase um, one apple and one orange, you would have two dollars of expenditure. And that would be our price index uh, that would be index our inflation uh, measure two. If in two weeks, Um, the price of apples doubled, we would assume that you're going to buy the same apple and orange, and then your expenditure would be $3. And we would say that prices have increased by 50%. Okay. 
I feel like I missed the grade I could have gotten in econ if only you had been my professor, because that makes perfect sense to me. Now, Heather, I have to say, as I was reading some of your reporting on our current inflation, is it true that we can blame all of this on bacon? <laughs> well, it's certainly been one of those skyrocketing. That's the apple and Trayvon's example right now, <laughs> for sure. And a lot of people are noticing prices going up. It's it's up about uh, 8.4% according to the last read. Uh, but it's interesting to think about it. So bacon, for instance, it's up over 8% from a year ago. But of course, what was going on a year ago, we were in the middle of the pandemic, some prices were uh, stagnating or even dropping a little bit on some products like hotel rooms that nobody wanted to stay in. So part of the reason we're seeing these eye popping numbers this year is because it's compared to a year ago when prices and the economy were in a very, very different place than they are now. So that point about us being in such a different place, Trevon, let me come to you on that because, you know, your example about the apple and the orange and, you know, yesterday it was $2, now it's 3 That's going to be rough because I'm going to still need that one apple and that one orange. But are these inflation numbers reflecting like the lived reality um, for folks on the ground right now, me at the grocery store, for example, um, or is it that things have shifted so much that we're not really feeling inflation? Yeah, so there are two things. So in this apple and orange example, so if apples now go from being $1 to being $2, you might decide not to purchase the apple and you might decide to purchase two oranges, right? So when these prices rise, one of the things that we know that consumers will do, also going back to Ecom 101, is they're going to substitute towards a good that is now relatively cheaper. And that is one of the things that is not reflected in um, some of the ways that we calculate uh, the consumer price index. So as some of these goods uh, increase in price, so if bacon now is much more expensive than it was a year ago, you might decide to substitute towards chicken. Um, Although what I also know is that chicken wings are in short supply. Nobody, nobody, and I'm speaking as a Southerner, is ever going to substitute chicken for bacon. (laughs) Heather, can you help us um, understand whether or not this is likely temporary um, or whether we're looking at price increases that are here to stay? That is the key debate, Melissa, that's going on in the White House and the palace of power on Wall Street and in many parts of the United States. Is this just the summer of high inflation and then it'll be forgotten by Thanksgiving or is this here to stay? And um, it was interesting this week, uh, the head of the Federal Reserve, our most powerful policymaker, he even said he is, quote, not comfortable with where things are right now. So a lot of it, you can look at and you can say, yeah, this probably won't last forever. Things like the airfares being up 25% or the hotel prices surging or um, furniture. Anyone who's tried to buy a laundry machine or a dishwasher or furniture right now, obviously when everyone, many people were at home, there was just this huge home renovation craze and home beautification craze going on. And so there's still back orders on a lot of couches and these sorts of, of things. Same thing, about a third of, of what's driving inflation right now is the surge in used car prices. I personally went car shopping this spring. I can attest the sticker shock of being on these car lots and seeing used cars are up about 45% from last year. And But usually with goods, with things like couches or cars, eventually 
the factories produce more. The companies get those items shipped and they get out into the stores and into the storeroom floors. And there, we have enough products to bring the prices back down. But how long does that take? Does that take a few months? Does that take a year? But that's that's why most people are still arguing the inflation could be short-lived. But what I worry a lot about, what's probably not short-lived, there is now starting to be some uptick in rent prices. And those tend not to go back down. Anybody who's gotten a rent increase knows when they jack you up 100, 200, however much um, a month, they usually don't come back next year and cut your price. So, Trevon, can you help us to think a little bit about um, this relationship between interest rates and inflation? Typically, they, they're inverse, and right now we've got very low interest rates. Is that causing the inflation rate to rise? Probably not. One of the things that we know from the type of inflation that we're experiencing right now, and this really gets back to this debate about whether it is transitory or permanent, is that we would have a situation of low interest rates um, for a time to ease monetary policy. But we've had low interest rates for quite some time. Um, We've had historically low interest rates essentially since the Great Recession, and we haven't had significant or um, out-of-control inflation in that time period. So it's not likely that there's a strong relationship between monetary policy right now in terms of interest rates and inflation, but one of the issues is the way that we know we can get inflation under control is by raising interest rates. And so that is one of the tools that the Fed would use to control inflation if it were to get out of control. It's another reason why people are not as concerned about the relationship because we have some tools that the Fed can use to bring inflation um, under control. So Heather, sometimes things are correlated even if they aren't causal. And we know there's a strong correlation between incumbent presidents getting reelected or not reelected and the economy. And, you know, I think Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter are typically held up as the examples of presidents felled by inflation. How worried is the Biden administration and how worried should they be? They're very worried when you talk to them on background or, or off the record. It's uh, it's definitely something that they're watching very closely. Uh, as Trayvon was saying, yes, we have a toolbox and we sort of know what tools to pull if inflation does go higher. But I think what's different this time around is, A, we haven't seen inflation anywhere near this level. So we are just saw an inflation read of over 5% for the past year. Usually in the past decade, it's been around 2% or even a little lower some years. And so people are not used to this. It's been a long time and memories have faded since the 70s and early 80s. Some people who are young have never really experienced anything like this. And also we have so many people who are retiring now and they now live on a fixed income. And usually when you see inflation, you also start to see wages rising. You know, if people are earning more money, they can afford to pay $2 for that app instead of $1. But if you're on a fixed income, you're obviously not suddenly going to get 5% raise in your monthly earnings. Your income is fixed. And so I think that dynamic is changing things a lot this time around. So Trevon, in terms of thinking about that question of wages and inflation, what's kind of the worst case possibility here? 
you know, the worst case scenario is our wages don't increase or keep in line. And we do see significant and persistent inflation. And that would erode the quality of life for people, right? So if you're earning the same uh, amount and prices are increasing, you can afford less and less. And so your standard of living is declining. And so we typically do see wage increases with inflation to sort of keep everything up to inflation. And to the point about retirement, some of the retirement accounts that we have, for example, social security payments are pegged to inflation. So the estimates of inflation, there is a little bit of a shield for some people, but the problem is when you peg those benefits to inflation, you also now need to increase the government's resources to keep those paychecks to be pegged to inflation. Oh, increased government resources. That sounds like taxes. Trevon Logan is a professor of economics at The Ohio State University. And Heather Long is an economics correspondent for The Washington Post. Thank you both for being here. Thanks, Melissa. Thank you. The American dream relies upon the rule of law and a functioning legal immigration system. That was Sheriff Ed Gonzalez, President Joe Biden's nominee to lead Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE. And he was speaking at his Senate confirmation hearing on Thursday. I have been proud throughout my career as a law enforcement professional to uphold our nation's laws. If confirmed as ICE director, I will be responsible for 20,000 dedicated men and women who work every day to guard against threats to our national security, public safety, and safeguard the integrity of our borders. If confirmed, Gonzalez will be the first Senate-confirmed head of ICE in more than four years. To some conservatives, Gonzalez's record as sheriff for Harris County in Texas is a major red flag. In 2017, Gonzalez opted out of a partnership with ICE that would have allowed local law enforcement agents to act in a similar capacity to federal immigration officers. And here he is responding to a question from Ohio Senator Rob Portman about whether he would end the program known as 287G as the head of ICE. This concerns me on 287G. Would would you, if confirmed, want to terminate the 287G program? You don't think it works well? You didn't want it in your own county? For me, it was a local decision. Uh, Let let me, I know my my question is, would you want to terminate the program? That would not be my my, uh, intent. But Gonzalez hasn't just faced pushback from those on the right. A number of immigration advocates say Gonzalez hasn't done enough to reform conditions in Harris County jails. And it's also worth noting that his county has still worked closely with ICE to hold undocumented immigrants for up to 48 hours after their release dates while the agency determines whether to take them into federal custody. For more, I'm joined now by Camilo Montojo-Galvez, immigration reporter for CBS News. Camilo, thanks so much for coming back on The Takeaway. Hi, Melissa. So who hates them more, conservatives or progressives? Yeah, no, your introduction was spot on. I think if confirmed, Ed Gonzalez will face uh, competing uh, views and pressure from left-leaning lawmakers, but also those uh, on the right uh, who worry that uh, ICE will not ramp up enforcement, deportations and arrests here in the interior of the country. The Biden administration certainly has never supported calls from left-leaning lawmakers to, quote, 
abolish ICE, but it has moved a militia to curtail arrests and deportations by issuing directives that narrow who should be prioritized for enforcement, in other words, uh, to be detained uh, and deported from the country. So the Biden administration uh, has reversed Trump pair of policies that made everyone here who doesn't have legal permission to be in the country game a uh, fair game for enforcement. Um, the Biden administration has instructed ICE agents to focus on those who pose a national security threat, uh, those who may pose a threat to public safety, as well as recent border crossers, migrants who are recently uh, apprehended along the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, so he is getting a lot of pushback from conservatives because of these directives that he will have to enforce, but he's also getting a lot of pushback from progressives who want to see ICE detention significantly reduced, um, and ICE detention has been increasing in the past few weeks because border agents are transferring uh, more migrants to the interior. So on, on that last point about, um, you know, th- this narrowing, while irritating to conservatives, is also insufficient for progressives. The ACLU released a statement after Gonzalez's hearing calling his vision for ICE deeply disappointing. Are those the primary issues that they had with his remarks? Yeah, as you mentioned in your introduction, as sheriff of Harris County, the most populous county in Texas, uh, Ed Gonzalez actually terminated a 287G program uh, with ICE. This program dates back to a Clinton-era law. And Melissa, it effectively allows local law enforcement to act as federal immigration officers within certain localities and to interview undocumented immigrants as well as green card holders who are convicted of certain crimes and to question them about their immigration status and hold them until ICE can pick them up. Uh, Ed Gonzalez said at the time that he terminated this agreement uh, because he felt that it undermined uh, his department's Uh, relationship with the local communities. That's an argument that many Democratic-led cities uh, make in favor of so-called sanctuary uh, policies. They say that uh, these policies are designed to build trust between local law enforcement and the immigrant communities they serve. Uh, But when pressed by Republican lawmakers this week, Ed Gonzalez said that he would not end the program entirely uh, nationwide because ICE still has many of these agreements with other local jurisdictions across the country. He said his was a local decision based on local needs. So that was very interesting to see. And it got, as you mentioned, a lot of pushback from the ACLU, which has been calling on detention and arrest to be significantly reduced. Yeah, and that kind of call to localism always sounds to me like a a sort of reach across the aisle moment. I I live in a county here in North Carolina where our first African-American elected sheriff um, ran on a non-compliance with ICE, um, you know, sort of ticket. And that's, that was really um, part of what brought him into, uh, into that position. So it's fascinating to watch um, these tensions um, emerge now at at the national level. Why has it taken so long for there to be um, a Senate confirmed ICE head? That is a key question. As you mentioned, during the Trump administration, ICE never had its Senate-confirmed permanent leader. There were always leaders who were serving on an acting capacity. Just one of those uh, was actually nominated uh, to serve as ICE director, but President Trump pulled his nomination uh, because of a surge in migration at the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, He said at the time that he wanted to go in a, quote, tougher direction and wanted to look for more leadership. Um, So that is something that I think was unique to the Trump administration, President Trump did make it clear that he'd like having uh, officials in acting capacities because he could fire them more easily. Uh, So I think that was a unique element to the administration. Uh, But 
you know, it, it remains uh, very uh, certain that uh, ICE officers, especially the ones who handle deportations and immigration arrests, uh, are looking for leadership. They are looking for uh, leaders that will be able to guide them through all of these competing pressures that they have on the agency. Because as you know, many of these progressives want the agency abolished and the Biden administration definitely does not support that, but it has um, issued several restrictions on who these agents uh, can arrest. And that has been uh, polarizing among some agents who feel like they're being handcuffed. At least that's what they're saying. So how, if add together this nomination and then one for which the hearing date has not yet been set um, for, for Tucson, Arizona Police Chief Chris Magnus, what do those two together tell you about Biden's immigration policy? Right. Well, Chris Magnus is also a local law enforcement official uh, from Arizona. Uh, so he has that law enforcement career and background uh, that I think the Biden administration is looking for. But he also has spoken out against ICE enforcement and the Trump administration's immigration policy. So he brings that balance of being a law enforcement official, but one that has expressed sympathy for immigrants and that has criticized hardline immigration policy. So I think that is uh, one of the uh, criteria that the Biden administration is looking for leaders at the Department of Homeland Security, some officials who can uh, on one hand, enforce uh, federal immigration law, which is a tough, difficult task, but also um, usher in what they call a more humane and orderly immigration system. Camilo Montojo Galvez is an immigration reporter for CBS News. Camilo, I hope you'll come back and talk about what's going on with COVID in the detention centers as well. Thanks, Melissa. In 1960, one in every three elderly Americans was poor. One in three. By 1995, the rate fell to below 10%. Just let that sink in for a moment. In just four swift decades, our nation slashed elder poverty. And we did it even as the proportion of older Americans grew. But let's be clear, this did not happen because older people finally decided to stop spending all their disposable income on beer and bingo. Nope. Personal responsibility and individual savings accounts do not change the economic realities of an entire population in just one generation. Transformational public policy does. We can never insure 100% of the population against 100% of the hazards and vicissitudes of life, but we have tried to frame a law which will give some measure of protection to the average citizen and to his family against the loss of a job and against poverty-stricken old age. You're listening there to President Franklin Roosevelt in August 1935 as he signed Social Security into law. The law was imperfect but transformative. And as Social Security expenditures rose, elderly poverty declined. Unfortunately, even as elder poverty declined, child poverty rose, and it rose sharply in this country. Today, nearly one in five American children currently live in poverty, and that's double the rate of elderly Americans. Yet over the decades, even as so many of America's young people struggled with the lifelong effects of poverty, lawmakers from both parties deployed the language of personal responsibility as it dramatically cut aid to families and children. Here are Vice President Al Gore and President Bill Clinton in August 1996 signing the sweeping welfare reform bill. 
The president will sign a welfare reform bill and make it law, one that reinforces such core American values as work, family, individual responsibility, and community. The new bill restores America's basic bargain of providing opportunity and demanding in return responsibility. On Thursday, Vice President Harris and President Biden sounded very different as they heralded a new effort that they hope just might turn the tide on child poverty. Let us mark this day, Thursday, July 15th, 2021, as the day the American family got so much stronger. Today, the expanded child tax credit is here. I believe this is actually a historic day. Historic day in the sense that we continue to build an economy that respects, recognizes the dignity of working class families and middle class families. Harris and Biden spoke even as the first payments of the Child Tax Credit, or CTC, begin to show up in the bank accounts of American families with children. Most American families will be eligible for up to $300 per child per month. And the money comes with no strings attached. Economists say the money could lift as many as 4 million children out of poverty. But it only goes so far. That's because the child tax credit is part of the American Rescue Plan, and therefore it's time limited. Payments will end in December of this year. So the urgent question facing the Biden administration is whether they can cultivate enough political will to make the policy permanent. And we asked you what your thoughts were on this new policy. This is Frank in Richmond, Virginia. So uh, we transferred the money into our son's college account. Um, Every little bit's gonna help and uh, that boy is going to need it. This is Caleb from Austin, Texas. We're putting it into our child's college fund. Hello, my name is Renee, and I'm calling from Apollo Beach. Uh, We did receive our child tax credit, as a matter of fact. However, we still haven't received our third stimulus payment, so I went ahead and had to take money out of my 401k to pay our back rent because we're still awaiting that. Hi, this is Jen in Austin, Texas. Uh, I and many others made a personal choice not to have kids. But that doesn't mean that we don't struggle as well. I think that a universal basic income would be better. Hi, I'm Chris. I'm from Spokane, Washington. Um, The tax credit, um, the child tax credit, is nice. It's a nice addition to our finances. We We do pretty well, but it means I can focus a little bit more on growing my businesses. And I'm finally taking the first vacation um, in five years. So I don't have to focus so much on what I get paid from the businesses. I can just grow them and do what's right. Hello, my name is Julianne, and I'm from um, Northwest Lower Michigan. I'm not getting any. I am retired. However, I raised three children by myself as a single mom. It was very difficult. I remember very well how hard it was. And I'm so very grateful that our government is doing something to help our families. It's crucial. We always love it when you talk with us. So record a voice memo and email it to takeawaycallers at gmail.com or call us at 877-869-8253. With me now is my friend Dorian Warren, co-president of Community Change and co-chair of the Economic Security Project. Welcome, Dorian. Thanks for having me, Melissa. 
<laughs> so Dorian, on Thursday, you and I co-hosted an event marking the start of the CTC payments and Community Change, the organization that you lead, was one of the many advocacy organizations who helped bring CTC into being. Can you tell me a little bit more about the coalition of organizations that were involved in making CDC a, a reality? Well, there are a lot of grassroots, particularly welfare rights organizations led by women and women of color in the 90s that emerged in the fight around a child tax credit in response to the ending, quote unquote, of welfare as we know it, that was signed into law, um, as you've already talked about, by President Bill Clinton in 1996. And so the child tax credit was one manifestation of that into policy in early 1997. It was expanded actually under the Bush tax cuts in 2001 that allowed um, what's called partial refundability. That is people who previously didn't earn enough money to qualify for um, part of the child tax credit. But it then took another 20 years mm. <laughs> of organizing and advocacy and champions in Congress to really, really get us to this point where we are today. So these are pretty different than how we've seen tax credits work before. These are coming as monthly payments. Can you help us understand that? Up until July 15th, the child tax credit was a once a year refund at tax time when you filed your taxes. We know that folks don't have emergency savings month to month. And so it is partly a, a, a question of policy design. And this is a very interesting policy design choice to go from one lump sum once a year to monthly. We know from social science research, <laughs> that kind of stability allows parents and caretakers to be able to plan for things they need for that month, whether it's food or diapers or what have you. It's just a smarter way to do public policy. It does seem to me that that enormous departure is both the thing that makes progressives super excited and also maybe marks um, the difficulty in bringing along bipartisan support. I want to take a listen to something that President Biden said on Thursday. We'll probably hear from our Republican friends, all who voted against this, but they'll tout the success as it helps working families and in their states and their districts. And so I say to my colleagues in Congress, this tax cut for working families is something we should extend, not end next year. What's the likelihood that the Biden administration can actually make that happen? It depends on three key factors, Melissa. First is awareness. Some of the early polling in May and June showed that half of eligible parents weren't aware of the temporary expansions in the child tax credit. So there's an awareness element here, a public education awareness of letting people know, of letting parents know they're aware. Second, though, is access. How do actual parents, and particularly those who haven't filed or haven't needed to file a tax return with the IRS, how are they able to file and receive the money? And there are some serious access questions, particularly because we know the IRS website is not mobile friendly. Many low-income parents rely on their phones, for instance, to access the internet. So there are a range of access questions. If people don't experience this, then that leads to probably not as much support as one would imagine. And then third is advocacy, of course. So it's not like <laughs> this is going to be easy, an easy lift in terms of advocacy to win enough support in Congress to make this permanent. And what we're facing is that when this expires after a year, child poverty will increase if there is nothing done, if the status quo, particularly in Congress, of not taking action on big things were to hold, then the poverty rating, for, especially for kids, will go up. 
parents would lose this benefit. So awareness, access, and efficacy are the three elements here of what would be necessary to make this temporary change permanent. So it's so fascinating to me that that payments as modest as $250 to $300 a month can lift more than 4 million children out of poverty, at least according to economists and, and the assessments of what this can do. How exactly is it that such modest payments make such a big difference? The one huge change in this temporary expansion of the child tax credit people are not talking about enough. And that helps to explain, that helps provide the answer to your question, Melissa. Before the American Rescue Plan, families that didn't earn um, over $2,500 were ineligible for the child tax credit. So there was actually a work or income requirement before this expansion. That's a lot, a lot of, that's millions of low-income children that weren't ever receiving this credit or a partial credit. So because of that change that, again, most people are not talking about, there are a whole bunch of the poorest families. Can you imagine the poorest families in America won't even weren't even eligible for this before the American Rescue Plan? So when you expand it and say there's no income requirements and that even if you didn't earn income, you're eligible for the full refund, right? That three thousand dollars or thirty six hundred dollars per child. That is actually transformative because we know for those that we have people in America that do, in fact, live on less than $2 a day, um, a title of a recent book by some social scientists. And so, you know, we, we tend to think of poverty as um, th- th- this issue that affects, yes, millions of people and especially black, brown, indigenous folks. But when you dig into the policy details, like I didn't, e- I'm an expert in this. I didn't even quite remember that families that didn't make more than $2,500 were ineligible for the child tax credit before the American Rescue Plan. So that's partly why this is so transformative. As you said, that little amount of money, um, $250 or $300 a month, is transformative for millions of parents who really, really struggle to make ends meet, to put food on the table, to buy those diapers, or to pay for school clothes or materials like it's a this is a really really big deal that we need much more discussion and conversation and especially more research around well thanks for starting the conversation with me dorian warren Warren is co-president of community change and co-chair of the economic security project if you want to watch the event that dorian and i co-hosted yesterday it's at the economic security project's facebook page thanks dorian thank you melissa Hi, my name is Liz Ritter. I'm calling from New York City. Um, I do not qualify for the monthly child tax credit as my children are now adults. And when they were younger, um, our family income was well above the floor for this program. But as an American and a taxpayer, I am so glad that this program has begun. There's nothing more patriotic than taking care of our neighbors and using our collective resources to extend a helping hand Lifting families up out of poverty is a great investment in the common good. Hi, my name is Cheyenne. I am in San Leandro, California. I am a teacher in Hayward, California, and we did get the child care tax credit deposit, and for us, it means um, a lot less stress in trying to pay for the child care costs that we mercifully did not have to pay during the pandemic, um, but have been keeping me awake at night, thinking about how to pay for um, as the school year starts and all of my kids 
go back into school full time and me wondering how we're going to have child care for them after hours um, in between my teaching day finishing and picking them up. So I am so grateful for it, my husband and I both, and it will go exactly where it should, which is straight to my children. Thanks. That's all the politics we have for y'all today. And as always, we appreciate you tuning in. But before we head out, though, let me give a quick shout out to our fantastic team that helps make all this radio happen. Our producers are Ethan Oberman, Meg Dalton, Lydia McMullen-Laird, Shanta Covington, and Katerina Barton. Our line producer is Jackie Martin. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Vince Fairchild is our board operator. Jay Cowett is our sound designer. Polly Ingrungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant. And Lee Hill is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and this is The Takeaway. The Takeaway.